Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was married for 30 years, in that relationship for 32. I've been divorced since 2018, and we did not find out we were a neurodiverse couple until our 29th year of marriage. So we have an adult daughter who's turning 26, and she's doing fantastic and thriving in her own relationship. And so today I have another AANE certified therapist that I have the pleasure of talking to today. Julianne Cusick is here with me and welcome, Julianne. Well, thank you, Mona. Um, Thank you for having me on the podcast today. I'm really excited to get to talk about neurodiversity. And I'm so excited to have discovered you and Neurodiverse Love podcast and all of the many, many resources you have on your website. Awesome. Uh, there's such a, yes, there's such a huge need, need for this. So I'm just um, excited to share um, awesome. today and also share with others what you're doing. So thank you. Thank you. I, that's my mission. My mission is to get this information out to the world, literally the world, because I didn't have it. And so we cause each other so much unintentional hurt and pain and trauma. And it took me a while to heal. And it, it shouldn't take as long as it did, because um, there are now more resources than there were in 2017 when I found out. So I would really love it. I know I always say this, that working with neurodiverse couples is a niche and it is a specialization. So I would love if you would share with the listeners kind of what brought you to work with neurodiverse couples and what made you decide to go for the AANE certification? Sure, absolutely. Um, It was quite a personal journey. So it started about five years ago, uh, five, six years ago, when our adopted daughter was first diagnosed uh, on the spectrum, Mm -hmm. high-functioning ASD. And I was reading and reading and reading. And of course, I was a therapist at the time. So as I'm reading all about um, autism, um, Asperger's, as it was still commonly referred to, and learning about autism spectrum disorder, I had some bells going off in my head, Mona. Mm -hmm. I was was like, oh my goodness, this is my life. Um, (laughs) This is my husband. And so we had been in couples counseling for years. I wouldn't say we failed couples counseling, but we had been in couples counseling um, for a significant amount of time. We both made some great individual progress, but we just kept coming back to these same places, these same issues, Mona, where we would just collide and misunderstand one another and get frustrated. And, oh, um, I hear you. (laughs) It was a little bit crazy making, right? Yes. Um, Yes. So it's similar to um, gaslighting, although it's not at all intentional. Right. Right. It's this neurodiversity. And so um, I shared my great wisdom with my husband and um, he was not welcome to my insight at the time. Yeah. And I so it was, same reaction. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was not a easy process that first year. So I think some mm-hmm. people go, oh my gosh, you're reading my mail. Um, you understand me. Right. Great. This is a framework I understand. And other people are like, huh? What? Yeah. Me? No. And there's right. that, that stigma attached to autism or ASD or even Asperger's. It's right. so misunderstood because people are not what we think. These people are bright. They're educated. They're successful. If you know, if you know my husband, he's, um, he's one of the smartest people I know. Mm-hmm. Um, he's funny. He's social. Um, he's successful. And And it's like, how does that fit? Right. And what I really have come to see, it's like if we're looking at a bullseye where somebody's doing some archery, Mm -hmm. you know, those outer rings, things are fine. Work, Mm. um, you know, exterior relationships. But as that bullseye pulls in to -hmm. the center of the bullseye, that target, that's where the breakdown is. I and love so, that. yeah, so it's like the further out my husband goes in relationships, um, 
acquaintances, peers, speaking professionally, like he can get up and do that in a heartbeat. And yet the closer it comes in, the anxiety, I think, starts to go up. And that neurodiversity starts to become apparent in, in the intimate partner relationship. Yeah. And so there's a bit of crazy making for both parties, the one on the spectrum and the one not. Right. Because the one on the spectrum is saying, well, I don't have these problems anywhere else with you. Right. <laughs> but with you. Right. And then the neurotypical is saying, well, hey, you can do X, Y, and Z over there with them. How come you can't do it with me? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. You, you and I were in the same house. <laughs> For the last, you know, however many years. Yes, that's yeah. exactly yeah. the conversation that I had with my ex. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's a challenge. Um, right. Yeah, it really is. It took about a year and I'm very grateful for neurodiverse couples coaching. That was a real uh, lifesaver for us. Uh, I would say, um, I mean, it really changed significantly the areas where we had continued to struggle after many years of, of couples therapy. And it was this framework of understanding. Oh, it's not that he's mean or that he doesn't love me or he doesn't consider me. I mean, that's not it in the least. Right. It's he may not see that unless I'm clear about it. Um, and so a lot of that mind reading and getting feelings hurt so we, my wait, a long answer to get to your question of how did I come to be uh, trained with AANE, I came in through the back door. I came in being a part of um, a neurotypical support group for partners. Mm -hmm. um, my husband has been a part of the neurodiverse groups that are online. We've done individual coaching, couples coaching, um, couples group. So lots of being involved in different ways. And Grace Myhill, who's the lead trainer for um, the, I know there's another name. Neurology Matters. Oh, yeah, Neurology Matters. It's the, I think it's the Jekyll Myhill model. Oh, yes, 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 um, yes. So, so I got connected with Grace and I knew once I was through with some other professional goals that I was working to achieve, this was the first level of training that I wanted. And so I became an, a certified neurodiverse couples coach through AANE. That's wonderful. Yeah. And, and it's so interesting. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your personal story, because it's so interesting of all the folks that I've interviewed, I'd say probably 75% of them were, didn't know and found out they were in a neurodiverse relationship or one of their children was diagnosed and they were already divorced from their partner and now realize mm -hmm. their partner is on the spectrum and then mm -hmm. decided that they wanted to help others so they don't have to go through what they went through. So, you know, I think that that is really, really important because I think it's wonderful when you have the training and the experience professionally and it adds a whole other dimension when you've had the personal experience, whether it's with a parent or a partner and or a child. So you've got a, a child who's on the spectrum and you've got a husband who's on the spectrum. So you've got it from different angles and you've experienced it for, well, you've experienced it your entire time together, but now yes. you have a name for it and <laughs> you can understand it better. So, so let's talk a little bit about, um, because you're a clinician yourself, and you're in Colorado, is that correct? Yes. Okay. And, you know, I, I'm sure you, in your work with neurodiverse couples, there are a lot of different tools you can use to assess what's going on. And I'd love if you could talk a little bit about what you actually are looking for, what kind of questions you're asking, are there any specific assessment tools you're using? Because I think it's going to be really helpful to the listeners to hear kind of what they should expect, um, at least in part from any clinician or coach that they're working with. Yes. Well, um, I will very humbly attempt to answer that question because um, I, I don't consider myself an expert. Um, I don't do psychological testing per se, like uh, a neuropsych, um, a neuropsychologist would do. Um, however, 
I, I don't necessarily know that that's some people will go that route and it may or may not show up, you know, ASD. Right. Um, I, I take a more, um, I hate to say non-clinical, but a more exper maybe experiential um, mm -hmm. approach. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I see it as a three prong. I like to meet with the person who's suspected to be on the spectrum in person. Um, and I like for their partner um, to be there with them because a lot of what I'm looking for is not just how they interact with me, but how right. they interact with their partner. Um, because that's primarily where it shows up. Yeah. And Julian, I have not talked about this on the podcast yet. So I'm going to say this and I'd like to almost scream it. If you, <laughs> if you go to a clinician or you go to a therapist and they are attempting to do some kind of assessment, doesn't have to be a formal evaluation of, or, um, of ASD, but if they do not include you as the partner of the person who might be autistic, that to me is a humongous red flag. And that's what happened when my ex went to a psychologist to go and begin the assessment process. I'm like, so when am I coming in, you know, to, to meet with him? He's like, oh, no, he doesn't need to meet with you. And I'm like, oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's, that's, I agree with you 110%. And that's why when I do an assessment, it's not just that individual but if they're in a neuro, in a relationship, I want to see the partner. And I don't want to only see the interactions between the two. I also want to meet one-on-one -on -one with the neurotypical partner. Mm -hmm. Because many times they have information about what they're experiencing that lines up with ASD, but they feel crazy. They, they wonder if it's them. Um, they're, no one's really listened to them before. They've been told it was their fault or their perception. And um, it's similar to um, what I've seen happen when there's been infidelity or porn addiction, where the wife um, gets blamed for something in the, in, in the relationship, um, indicating that she's somehow responsible or or playing into her husband's sexual addiction. And it's simply not true. Mm -hmm. Nor is it nor is it true in a neurodiverse relationship that it's the neurotypical's fault, that it's something, you know, um, that they have done. It's it's really peeling back the layers. And most of my experience, there have been a few times where people are a little resistant. Um, but most of the times, I, I try to explain neurodiversity without using terms like autism and Asperger's because of preconceived notions. So I use neurodiversity or neurodivergent language. Mm -hmm. And I, I try to explain that this is part of your genetic wiring in your neurological wiring in your brain. And that there are a lot of gifts that come with this. And I'll, by then, know what they are. You're funny. You're successful. Um, right. you're, really, you're really smart in these areas. Um, you have these special interests where you're really an expert in these areas. Um, but I do like to talk to the individual and the partner as well as the couple together because they each have data, right, that is helpful in a proper understanding and framework of understanding for neurodiversity and ASD. I couldn't agree with you more. And I know there are going to be folks that are going to be listening to this and they're going to want to reach out to you. So do you do only therapy in Colorado or do you do coaching? And could somebody, could a couple come to you for coaching to have this kind of assessment? So yes and no, okay. uh, I, I don't work um, outside of the state of Colorado at this time, primarily because my caseload um, here is so demanding that um, I'm not able to take on um, other, you know, other out of state and do support groups or meet with people. I know there's a need and my heart is there, but my, my schedule simply doesn't allow it. Um, what I do do, uh, there's two things I do offer. Um, I work with an organization that really specializes in couples who have 
failed marriage counseling. Like they've tried two or three times, they keep having the same issues, um, they're not getting resolution. And so our team really has the lens to look beneath the surface, mm-hmm. to look at unresolved, um, unaddressed trauma, to look at the lens of um, personality, DSM diagnoses. And then also, um, this is where I'm training our team, is how to pick up neurodiversity. Um, Because people are coming to us discouraged, um, having tried local counseling two or three times and it's not working, having complex issues, we tend to see a little bit more in neurodiversity, Mm -hmm. which which makes sense. So people can come through um, a couple's one or two week intensive and assessment is included in that process. Um, For local people, I've had a couple people in the Denver area reach out and I'll do like a two hour assessment um, where they come in in person Mm -hmm. and I I can't, I can't work with them ongoingly, but I can, I can say pretty much yes or no. And yes, here's a framework of understanding and here are some recommendations as you move forward. because traditional counseling, many, many times, traditional marriage counseling or couples counseling will, won't work or it'll only work to some extent. And sometimes it can, it can be damaging. Yes, it um, was for me and, and my yeah. ex. It was yeah. very damaging for me. I walked away. We went to three counselors during our separation. I walked away with lower self-esteem and more craziness in my head than I had ever had in my whole life. And it was absolutely horrible. And I say this on the podcast and I repeat it because I want therapists and counselors to hear this, but I also want couples to hear this. You know, you're not a failure because you went to a therapist or a counselor or even a a coach who didn't understand neurodiversity and your neurology and your different neurotypes. You're not a failure. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, my heart goes out to folks that experience anything like what I experienced. And again, that's why I'm doing this work. And I know, you know, it's why you're doing this work because Mm -hmm. you have had your own issues. But I love, I love Julianne that you do a thorough assessment with each individual or you have a conversation and with the couple and you're looking at their marriage history, you're looking at their personal life. Are you looking also at clinical history, like if there are issues of uh, OCD or anxiety or gastrointestinal issues or paranoia or other things that um, they may have dealt with? Yes. And I do that through history taking, getting a a full history medically, as well as what they've done therapeutically, what they've tried counseling wise. And how I explain it is that there's an umbrella understanding an umbrella term, which is ASD, where there are a lot of other diagnoses or issues, right, that an individual may be struggling with, depression, anxiety, mood disorders, uh, weight, food, sleep, Mm -hmm. um, plus all the ones that you've mentioned. And so I'm thinking of one situation um, where the person Um, the psychologist writing the report said, you know, ruled out um, ASD uh, because individual was able to maintain eye contact and Mm. could could clearly express their thoughts. Mm. Well, um, that's heartbreaking to me. And I said, I said, well, you know, here's my professional opinion, you know, take it or leave it. You don't have to believe me, but here's what I see. And here's how I see it playing out in your relationship. And here's how it makes sense to each of you individually. Um, and it was sad because, you know, people on the spectrum, my heart really goes out to them because the world doesn't make sense to them from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, they might be bullied. They might not get childhood humor. Um, they might be picked on. They, there's a the tendency of, of this chronic feeling of I don't fit. Nobody understands me. Right. And they might get the label of ADD or ADHD, or they might be twice exceptional where they're um, a high verbal, uh, have a high verbal IQ, but a low performance IQ, you know, so they're smart, but they can't show it. They're not smart, quote, quote, in the traditional ways where they can perform and do this report written. Um, 
or they can do it to the nth degree. That's right. the thing about right. the spectrum is there are some extremes. If you look at where, you know, from one end of the spectrum to another, it's like we're covering a lot of ground here and it's very easy to miss this. Yes. Um, and I think that's how people come to you, me, A-A-N-E. You know, they come because it's been missed before and they're looking to figure out um, what's going on. And I think there's a sense of relief, or at least there can be of, oh, you know, it's not like I'm a real jerk. It's that in my mind, I see things differently. Oh, okay. Oh, you know, and so there's so much shame and and guilt um, that's weighing down on people before diagnosis. And they, they just feel shackled. You know, they're saying what's wrong with me or how come I'm successful everywhere else, but in my, my most important relationship with my wife. And, you know, my hope is that whoever we are that are working with these, this neurodiverse community, that when we do diagnose, we're able to provide some hope and some healing and a path towards that for folks that are neurodiverse. I couldn't agree more. And I, the hope and healing piece is exactly why I'm doing this work and will do it probably until I leave this earth. Because when I do my intro and I tell folks that I was with my ex for 32 years, I say that with love. I have so much um, deep caring for him still. And I don't think that a lot of folks experience that because by the time the relationship ends, there's so much trauma and so much toxicity. We had that too. But before we divorced, we realized we were a neurodiverse couple. And that gave me some opportunities to heal. Now, I can't speak for my ex. You know, he's on his own journey. But I've been able to heal pretty much completely. And I now have hope for other neurodiverse couples. And literally every man that I've dated since my separation and divorce is neurodivergent. So every relationship, yeah, (laughs) every relationship, (laughs) I've had an opportunity to apply what I learned and didn't do in my marriage because I didn't know we were a neurodiverse couple. Mm. But the hope and healing is something that I hear often from couples, especially in the neurodiverse couples groups that I'm doing now. It's so wonderful to hear people say, I've never met another couple like us. And mm-hmm. now I'm sitting here on Zoom with five other couples because there's six <laughs> couples in my neurodiverse couples groups. And we're all telling the same story. And for the first time in their lives, they are starting to release some of that shame and guilt and hurt and toxicity and anger. But it's going to take a while. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So thank you for 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 saying what you said about the hope and healing, because I do believe that it's absolutely possible. Absolutely. And, and I know you talked about, you are a betrayal trauma specialist, which is such an important specialty along with the neurodiverse couples, you know, expertise and, and training. And would you mind sharing a little bit about what you do as a betrayal trauma specialist, what that involves? Because I think it would be helpful as we talk about some other topics. Yes, absolutely. Um, Let me first say, um, you made a comment that, um, you know, there's something about having lived the experience that's really beneficial. So long before I was a licensed clinician, I met with people that mostly wives whose husbands were acting out with pornography because that was our story. Three years into our marriage, I discovered that my husband was acting out that way. He had told me before we got married. I naively believed once we got married, it wouldn't be a problem. There are so many wives in that situation Yep. because sex addiction or porn addiction isn't about sex. Right. 
And so um, that's how I actually became licensed was I spent so much time meeting with people and people would say to me, I don't care because I, in my disclosure, well, I'm not licensed, I'm an unlicensed, you know, and I don't care, you've been through it, I want to talk to you. Right. So I was doing this type of work before we had the phrase betrayal trauma or intimate partner betrayal trauma. And so it was very much a 12-step um, codependent enabler type of model. And women were, were just being devastated that their whole life as they knew it was blowing up. And then they would seek help. And many times they were told they needed treatment as well. Mm. Um, and so I just was like, when I was doing groups at the time, what I kept seeing in the women was, you know, this isn't codependency. This is a trauma response. These women are trying to gain equilibrium. You know, they're trying to return to homeostasis because they have none right now. Their whole world has blown up. And yeah, they might be hypervigilant, but they're not hypervigilant because they're codependent. They're hypervigilant because they have no safety in their life and they don't know anymore who they can trust because the person that's closest to them, the person that they confided in, shared a bed with, their body with, maybe had children with, is now the person who's, who's harmed them through keeping a secret and acting out in these ways. Um, so absolutely de devastating. So I did that work and still do that work. Um, but for many years without finding really good resources, um, the first professional that I heard really, really um, speak about it was offering a training, actually. And mm. that's Dr. Dr. Omar Manwala. Um, he's got the Manwala method. Okay. And he's out, he's out in California. Um, and so here was this clinical expert with this, you know, the data <laughs> mm -hmm. saying the same thing I was saying. And I was like, okay, great. So I'm not crazy. And I think more and more uh, in the last 10 to 15 years, there's just been a growing awareness of this. Um, but really it's, it's that trauma informed care. If we think about people with natural disasters or someone with a sexual assault, um, mm -hmm you know, there's an injury to our system that shakes us to the core of who we are. And the the treatment there, then, if you will, is really caregiving, mm. um, helping to, to recreate a sense of safety and stability. Mm -hmm. And so that's what to me, anyway, betrayal trauma is, is when um, one partner experiences a significant betrayal in their closest um, uh, intimate partner relationship, whether they're living together or married, um, they, and it doesn't have to be sexual, it could be financial, mm -hmm. um, could be an affair, it's any kind of broken trust where there's been a secret. Um, my experience is that tends to throw um, the balance off in the relationship, and the trust is fragmented. Mm hmm and yeah no I, I was I was going to say um you know as I'm listening to you I realize that the reason that I wanted a separation and then ultimately a divorce was because I had lost trust and respect for my mm. ex-husband so I'm going to keep that I'm going to I'm going to keep that in my head but I would love for you to keep talking and sharing because I think this is something that a lot of the women in my support group are dealing with. Yeah, I, you know, it kind of makes sense. We were talking offline before um, the recording started that, you know, my hunch is that many neurodiverse couples may also be impacted by um, a sexual impulsivity or compulsivity like porn. And you said, absolutely. So yes. you're, I'm like testing my hypothesis here <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> with you, Mona. Um, and it really kind of makes sense because I have these, you know, desires and needs, but I'm terrified of my partner. <laughs> and yeah. so what a safe way, um, some think to learn about it because mm -hmm. nobody maybe has talked to them about it or a way to, um, feel pleasure in a in a distancing way. Now that's not to say that everybody, 
that looks at porn is on the spectrum or that every person on the spectrum looks at porn. That's not right. true at all. Right. Um, you know, people have ADHD doesn't mean they're on the spectrum, right? right? But it's possible that people on the spectrum can also have ADHD. Right. Um, so yeah, I think there's a little bit of um, a connection there that, that makes sense. And what I'm seeing clinically with um, the women I work with, and let me just say that primarily the audience of those struggling with um, porn or those that are on the spectrum, I would say over 90% in my practice has been the male. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to, and the women are the ones that are the neurotypical partner or the betrayed partner. And so I just want to say that's not always the case. There are certainly sure. neurodiverse relationships um, where both people are on the spectrum and there's w women who are the betrayer, if you will, and the men are the ones that are dealing with this. So, and, and women on the spectrum whose husbands are neurotypical mm -hmm. or partners are neurotypical. So it goes both ways. It's just what's more predominant, um, mm -hmm. I think, across the board and certainly what I've worked with. So that being said, in the, the female uh, or the, the non-neurodiverse, um, the neurotypical partner or the betrayed partner, there's a lot of similarities. They feel gaslit. They're confused. They think it's their fault. Um, they don't understand. Um, they can struggle with self-esteem, self-confidence. Yourself mentioned how your self-confidence went down. Um, and so there's a lot of resiliency work. Um, and reframing and really empowering these women to um, develop th their own sense of self and security mm -hmm. apart from the relationship. Oh, this is so important. And, you know, I am so glad that I have folks that are willing to talk about this because mm -hmm. I think it has become something that more people feel comfortable talking about but not like with their friends or not with family or whatever with a therapist and to have the right therapist is so important. And I think one of the things that I keep hearing in the support group that I run for those women that are dealing with this betrayal piece, and some have just immediately ended their relationship, you know, when they mm -hmm. found mm -hmm. that their partner was um, viewing porn and had lots of, uh, files on the on the computer they looked at the history they didn't even they didn't even try to hide it oftentimes and they were able to find it easily just the betrayal and the feeling of no self-worth and you know I'm in the room right next to you why are you having porn? Mm. why are you watching porn why are you masturbating and and I've said this before on the podcast and I'd love your thoughts on this I think that sometimes it's because it is an anxiety reducer. I know ah. that, right? I know that yes. you know, the anxiety can be through the roof and, and it's an anxiety reducer in a lot of ways. Number one, you know, when you come home and you've got all this responsibility or you've had all this responsibility at work and you come talk to somebody or engage with your partner who's going to have their own desires or their own wants or their own requests, that's just going to overwhelm you further as an autistic person. And there's nobody judging you. There's nobody asking for anything else when you're sitting in front of your computer or you're on your phone and you're masturbating and you're watching porn. So I, I, I just, I want to say that because I think it's so important for the folks who are betrayed for their self-worth and their self-esteem and their strength as, as people. Um, I don't know if you'd like to add anything to that because I think this, as you know, there is an opportunity to heal and grow, but it doesn't yes. happen overnight. It doesn't happen. No, overnight. it, no, it doesn't. And I think what I'd say to a, a neurotypical partner or a betrayed partner is, um, this isn't your fault. Mm -hmm. This isn't your fault this isn't your fault. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that there's a lot of reasons why, um, people have any kind of addiction or compulsivity. And it, if we look at folks with substance addictions yeah, in, in that world, um, we're looking beneath the surface and we're looking at trauma. 
Right. Right. We're looking at the reason I use is to numb the pain I feel inside. Right. Well, doesn't that carry over into gambling or eating or shopping or porn? Yep. So I, I don't, I don't like to demonize um, behaviors or addictions um, because we're not, we're not that label. We're, right. We are people with issues with tendencies, with struggles, and with with ASD, you know, neurodiversity, there's not a one size fits all. Nope. Every person I work with who's neurodiverse is a little bit different. Right. And they have their own characteristics that are neurodiverse to them, but they they're not going to have the same neurodiverse um, you know, traits as the person right next to them or right. the next client that I work with. And so I think it's hard for clinicians to really get a flavor of what being in the room with neurodiversity feels like. And that's, that's, that's where I go. And there's, um, there's a lot of reasons why we all do the things that we do. Yeah, I, I so agree with you. And, and I really like that you use the word demonizing, because Mm. I think it goes along with pathologizing. Yes. And I know that um, sometimes for the autistic partner, it can feel like your non autistic or neurotypical partner is doing that. And I think it's really, really important. This is just my thought based on my experience in my relationships. Um, I did that. I demonized, I pathologized, I made myself better than, and Mm. that was absolutely wrong. And, you know, I've apologized, you know, numerous times to my ex. And uh, I also know that we do that because we're not getting our needs met. You know, mm. it, it's it's something that and, and maybe due to trauma or whatever. But when we're not getting our needs met, whichever partner we are, we have a tendency to judge and confront in an angry way and possibly pathologize or demonize. So is there something that you do to help couples who are stuck in that phase, whether there has been betrayal, whether they've just recently found out they're a neurodiverse couple, where there, you see the demonizing, you see the pathologizing, you see the judgment and the critical behavior, and just you wonder if they still care about each other. You know, mm. how, how, what are some of the things that you do to help them heal or begin that road to hope? and healing. Is there anything Mm. you can share that folks might um, hold on to as, as, you know, a a grain of, of hope? Hmm. Well, first, let me say, Mona, um, that I'm right there with you. I appreciate your humility and your honesty. You know, I cringe looking back at some of the ways uh, I parented, some of the ways Mm -hmm. I related to my husband before I understood neurodiversity. Um, even some of the parenting advice I got that I did not take. And I think, oh my gosh, that would have been the absolute worst thing for me to do. You know, thank goodness. Um, So we're all human. We all make mistakes. And I see myself um, when I work with a couple as an interpreter, Mm, whatever reason, whatever reason they're in my office and they have this conflict in their marriage, right? Right. I'm an invest I'm an investigator because I want to peel back the layers to figure out what's the root, what's really causing this. And then relationally, I see myself as an interpreter. So my desire and my intent is to see and hear and validate each partner and then to help them see and hear and understand each other. That's wonderful. That is so good. And, you know, I know that's something Oprah used to say, right? Um, she used to say something like, I want you to see me. I want you to hear me. I want you to understand me. And that's mm-hmm. what we all want, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 
And mm-hmm. when you're the autistic person and you didn't know you were autistic and you were bullied yes. and you were ridiculed and you had no friends who understood you. And then when, you know, you attempted to be in a relationship with somebody that you had a romantic interest in and they turned you down and you didn't know why, cause you were, you know, doing what you saw in the movies. And mm-hmm. then, you know, when you're the non-autistic or neurotypical partner and you see that your partner was, you know, X, Y, and Z when he, he or she was courting you and then things changed when the relationship changed oh yeah right yeah you know there's there's so you might have seen and heard and kind of validated and understood each other at the beginning but then you're like what the heck Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. how did we get off this train track so quickly and, yes. and then yes. you go for therapy and the therapists are not neurodiverse knowledgeable and it just makes it worse. Yeah. So, so what I, I would love to hear maybe some of the tools that you've shared or helped folks use and understand and how to use them regularly. Um, just ways in which you've helped the clients that you've worked with move beyond the, the anger and the, sometimes hatred. Yes. First it's holding space for that. So there needs to be that space to process all of that. Yes. Indi- indivi- probably individually so that they're not harming, reharming, you know, their partner as they're, they're doing that. But some of the practical skills really come from the AANE training. Some of them are more traditional um, counseling tools but they're used after there's a framework and diagnosis and understanding of ASD mm-hmm. instead of just, oh, practice this and here, you know, it'll work. One of the things I notice is the different perspective people have. Yes. And so they get into this argument of like who's right or who's wrong. And so introducing, there's an image um, where one way you look at it, it looks like a duck. Another way you look at it, it looks like a bunny. Right. Um, so introducing the duck bunny and, and saying your partner's not against you, right? Because people tend to think, oh, my partner's the enemy. So I have to fight. I have to defend Your right. nervous system gets all activated, but we're working for the same thing. We're for each other. So slowing down the process, um, a lot of folks uh, on the spectrum, very, very bright, um, but they can have a fast or a slow processing speed. But what we know from Tony Atwood is when anxiety is present, that working IQ drops 30 points. Yeah. So if I'm in an intimate partner relationship and all of a sudden it's not going well, well, guess what? I'm going to be anxious and I'm not going to be able to process or stay engaged Mm -hmm. with what's happening. And many times this is where um, the neurotypical gets really frustrated. Like you always walk away from me or why don't we ever finish this? Mm -hmm. Um, but the, the intensity is too much. So I like to slow things down. I tell people how to take a pause. Um, we all stream nowadays, right? And what do we do when we need a bathroom break or refill our water bottle? We hit pause. Absolutely. we We need to do that relationally as well. Um, so when they get into gridlock, um, Dan Siegel says, name it to tame it with our emotions. When they hit each other and they're disagreeing, somebody name it. Oh, we're stuck again. Oh, duck bunny. You know, mm-hmm. whatever they want to use to name the cycle that's happening, it starts to diffuse it and it can take them out of actually being in the cycle because now they're an observer going, oh, this is what's happening. Oh, I know what to do now. We need to slow things down. We need to take a pause. We need to work out what it is that we're wanting to communicate. And the next step is I need to be in a place where I can hold space for my partner and hear what they're saying. And so this is where I introduce the age old uh, reflective listening skill and Mm -hmm. I statements. Mm -hmm. Um, We, we tend to, when we're upset, neurodiverse or not, we, we tend to, when we're upset, become more attacking and accusing. Well, you did this, or you didn't do that, or why do you always? And so we use things like always, never. And the you is a very blaming stance. And so pointing that out, not in, in, a, in a sense of 
shame, but to say, hey, how do you feel when somebody says you? Oh, I feel defensive. Exactly. We all do. So putting it in terms of I feel. Right. Um, when this happens, I feel. It diffuses it and it invites that neurodiverse um, or even neurotypical partner to be able to see a little bit of the inside, the heart, the underbelly of the person, that soft, tender spot. spot. And one of the things that I picked up um, through AANE's training is to t when we're asking, we're saying, hey, when you do this, this is how it makes me feel. Here's what I want mm -hmm. is to also include, and this is how it's going to make me feel if you do this. Mm -hmm. Because we, we have to write the story many times for somebody that's neurodiverse in a relationship because they don't know why does it bother you that my socks are on the floor? Can't you just get over that? You know, yeah. that's a normal thing. But to be able to say, when I see that, I feel stressed and overwhelmed and I would feel so respected, um, you know, if you picked up your socks and put them in the hamper. And, and then I've had people in my office literally go, oh, Oh, I would do that if I yeah. knew, if I knew that my partner was going to feel loved or respected or comforted or, you know, relieved by me doing this chore or task. Oh my gosh, it like changes everything. So we need to put, tell the why, why yeah. it's important to us and how we're going to feel um, if we can go for a walk or go on a date or have this conversation or make the bed a certain way or fold the towels a certain way. <laughs> You know, yeah. because this, these are the things that, right, that rub yep. up against us when yes. we're living with someone. Right. And create that gridlock that Gottman, you know, John Gottman talks about and the mm -hmm. communication roundabouts where mm -hmm. you're literally having the same argument, the same discussion every yeah. time you talk or argue for, in my case, 30 years, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and mm -hmm. nothing seemed to resolve it because what happens is because we're wired so differently, my ex could not understand my emotions, right? And so I got emotional at certain times and he didn't know what to do. So he would do what he knew to do, which was he would ask, you know, do you want a back scratch? Do you want a massage? Because he knew I loved those things. Mm. Or, or he would bring me my favorite chocolate bar, which is Snickers. So my, but my needs didn't get met. What I wanted was for him to have a conversation with me, but he didn't know what to say. He didn't know what I needed in that conversation. So he gave me the concrete thing that he yes. knew I liked. And yes. so, and so I, I can, you know, ch chuckle about it now, but when I explain this as you, as you do to couples, they're like, Oh, so mm -hmm. when, she, when she gets home from work and she is so emotional about something that happened, I don't need to do a concrete thing. I need to sit there and listen to her and mirror what she's saying or do some reflective listening. Okay. Mm -hmm. I can mm -hmm. do that. And I've mm -hmm. literally, I've literally had partners who are, are autistic say, I will literally do anything yes. that she needs yes. me to do. And I'm yes. like, oh my gosh. And, and, yes. and the partner doesn't believe the neurotypical non-autistic partner does not believe their partner will do anything, but literally they will if they oh. just understand and we can share with them in a concrete way what needs to change right yes yes so yes powerful. yes yes <laughs> i have i i am married to a man who would give me the shirt off his back yeah um you know kind-hearted generous wants to please will do anything um and so i try and take the mystery out um and i just tell um I just tell clients, don't try to figure out what she wants or needs. Just ask her, what do right. you need from me right now? Right. And then it's clear. Uh, right. I'd love that Snickers bar or I'd love a back rub or how about a hug or could you just take out the trash? Like it's not, it doesn't have to be, you know, like neuroscience or right. aerospace. Like I think we tend to try and figure out and that's, I think, neurologically where the wiring 
um, is different is there's not that I can just know what you need. And that's what I hear from neurotypicals is I just yes. want them to know what I need. Well, it's and, not going to happen. Not going to happen. And the neurodiverse individual, right? They, they're trying right. and it's like, oh, that's such a huge miss, but their heart is in the right place. So many yes. times, right? Their heart is right. in the right place. I'm trying, but nothing I do for you is good enough. I can right. never get it right. See, then the spiral goes down. He doesn't see me. He doesn't know me. Right. Um, I, you know, it just goes. So if we could just tell each other what I need right now is blank. When you walk in the door at, after work, I need you to greet me and say hello and give me a hug and a kiss. Oh, right. okay, great. If you do that, I'm going to feel really connected and appreciated. And it's going to set the tone for our evening. Well, who's not going to want to have a good evening? <laughs> exactly. Oh my and gosh. So, so yeah. if we can just tell each other what we need and why it's important to us, we increase the chances that the other person is going to go, oh, really? You know, um, and then they're more willing to partner with us in that way or meet us in that way or offer that to us. Yes. Um, yeah. That is, that is critical. I mean, you know, I'm working on the neurodiverse love relationship GPS and mm. um, the GPS stands for gaining perspective for success. And I just think that, you know, over the five relationships I've had, plus my father was neurodiverse too, and my mother and, and he did not know, um, and he, they both passed away. So all the relationships that I've had in watching my parents, if we had all understood each other's perspective and that we have such different perspectives, things could have turned out differently. And, you know, every relationship I learned, but perspective taking and understanding how different each other's perspectives can be and honoring that and asking, like you said, for what we need, being very clear and why we need it can be a game changer. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, and you know what, this is the other thing that I want to say, because um, the man I dated the longest after my divorce, I said to him, I need a hug when I am upset. And he goes, okay, I can give you that. And I said, I may need a longer hug than you're, you're usually willing to give. And he goes, <laughs> and he said to me, I don't know if I can do that. Yeah. And at first, at first I got a little upset, you know, inside, but then I thought he's on the spectrum. So I've got to accept that he's going to give me what he can give me at this time. But he heard me that I need longer hugs sometimes and maybe he'll try. Yeah. So, and, and maybe there are some things that we as non-autistic or neurotypical folks are going to ask for and our partners can't give it to us in the moment, but yes. we, we can ask for it again with respect and kindness and maybe they can mm -hmm. give it to us at a later time. Right. Yeah. That's a really good point. The timing of it, of um, when would be a good time for this or um this would be really meaningful to me. Can you let me know a good time when I could get that hug or get that longer hug? And yeah. that just creates more space and room in the relationship. Um, and this popped into my head as well, is that it's not personal. Right. Oh right? my gosh. Yes. You know, the man, the gentleman, it's not personal that he, you know, isn't able to give you a longer hug. It's not no. personal at all. It's no. neurological. Right. <laughs> you know, right. and it's the, it's the anxiety that comes up or the sensory sensitivity that comes right. up. Right. Um, and so I think for both parties to be able to start to reframe, she, he or she is not against you. It's not personal. Right. It right. feels personal. Right. It feels absolutely personal, but it's not. And that for me really helped me. Mm -hmm. um, in my, in my neurodiverse relationship. Amen. 
Amen. Yeah. I'm raising both hands. Yeah. yeah. And, and, <laughs> and with every relationship, you know, you learn a little bit more, whether it's a friendship or a love relationship or a relationship with a child or a coworker. You know, I've learned so much over the last five years and it's helped me be better in all those roles. So, Julian, we've talked about so many important things that my listeners are going to benefit from. I'd love for you to end with two things. If there's something else we haven't talked about, like a word of wisdom or a tool that you use that you would like to share, or maybe even something you wish you knew 20 years ago, (laughs) that if you had, it would have been a game changer. And then how do people contact you? So last words of wisdom, and then how do they contact you? Um, Okay, good question. So um, last words of wisdom, I'm going to have to think about that a minute. Um, I think you actually um, said it earlier when you talked about um, being involved, having the partner being involved in any kind of assessment. Mm. Um, I think that's really, really, really essential. I think if you have a hunch, whether you're neurodiverse or neurotypical, that you could be dealing with neurodiversity, I would say reach out to somebody that is familiar, has the language, has the lens because it can be a game changer in relationships. Yep. yep. Um, and this, we didn't talk uh, about the genetic piece, but many of us have a neurodiverse parent or a neuro- neurodiverse child, and that's very common. Um, mm-hmm. And so if you think your child might be, or your in-laws or your parent might be, it's worth looking into. Doesn't mean it's definite, but it's possible. Um, and likely probable. And I think finally, I think I would say there really is hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, there really is. And it's not for everybody. Um, But I have a wonderful uh, relationship with my husband. Um, We've now been married 31 years. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Uh, Let's see, I think we're going on five of those years, at least four of them knowing and understanding that we're neurodiverse. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, and that has really, really made such a huge difference in improving um, our relationship, our connection, just the, the enjoyment of one another in our relationship. Um, we just That's understand wonderful. each other. Yeah, we understand each other so much better by having this lens. So yeah. I would say don't ignore it. There's no, there's no shame in it. It's not... Um, like a terminal, <laughs> right. it's, not, it's not terminal, like there's right. hope and there's great understanding. Yeah. Um, and then people can just um, Google me and or they can go to restoringthesoul.com. Um, that's the name of our organization here in Colorado. Um, yeah, awesome. I think that's all I have. Awesome. And so you have um, staff that are available to do assessments. You're not taking any new clients at this time. Um, And if folks want to reach out, they can say, you know, they heard you on the podcast and they're interested in an assessment and somebody would contact them or get back in touch with them. Um, A little clarity there. We do take new clients um, and we'll do an assessment as a part of um, what we call a soul care intensive. And so all of our therapists work in the intensive format where it's one or two weeks. People are here um, in Colorado and we're spending 15 to 30 hours with them clinically. And that really allows us to get to the deeper issue underneath. Um, So Um, For those who are in Colorado, um, right now, I'm the only one at our office who is doing that two-hour assessment. Um, But I'm always building resources like the Neurodiverse Podcast, um, (laughs) Neurodiverse Love Podcast, that when uh, when I work with individuals and with the team that I'm saying, here's another resource, here's another resource. So there's more and more uh, growing awareness in the field, and there's more and more uh, coaches that like yourself, Mona, are out there um, trying to make a difference and making a difference in Mm. that's much needed in the field. Yeah. Thank you so much, Julianne. And I always like to say, you know, there are a lot of folks out there that are struggling 
And just because you find the right therapist or the right coach doesn't mean that you want to stay in the relationship. And that's okay. But wouldn't it be wonderful if those that decide to end their relationship do it with respect and kindness and compassion and grace for themselves and their partner, rather than ending with a lot of toxicity and anger and bitterness? Oh, yes, absolutely. And that's one of the things um, when couples do come to a place of ending their their relationship, how what does it mean to end well? And if there are children or even adult children involved, that lives are going to be connected um, for the rest of the adult's life. Yes. Um, And so how do you navigate ending well so that there can be birthdays and holidays and weddings and anniversaries and, um, you know, celebrating grandchildren being born or going to college, the whole gamut. Um, so yes, there's, there's definitely, it's worth the investment to end well, because you reap the rewards long afterwards. I agree. What a great note to end on. Thank you so much for your time, for your vulnerability, your honesty, sharing your expertise, and for all the work that you're doing in so many different areas, helping couples and neurodiverse couples and individuals who are dealing with betrayal. Thank you, Julianne. It was a pleasure. Oh, Mona, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much for allowing me to be on your podcast. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And I hope Um, that we get to talk again.